0: Let's pray together, church. Lord, open our eyes to to the wonder of who you are, that you are worthy of our praise. And as we raise our hands to you, you are worthy of us to worship you with hands lifted high, with Hearts humbled low and with joy and passion in our spirit. Lord, open our eyes this morning as we come into your word. We are humbled. God, your word is a, has authority over us. Make us, change us, transform us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For many years, I looked forward to uh, the summer uh, and I can remember uh, many years uh, all checking day by day to see where Lance Armstrong was in the Tour de France. And uh, I always enjoyed watching and listening and following him cycle. And if you're not familiar with Lance Armstrong, uh, from 1999 to 2005, uh, he won the race known as the Tour de France, which is the biggest or cycling race in the world. And I can remember driving to youth camp with my prior church uh, and listening to where he was each stage. And, and he always did so well on the climbing. And when he got to the mountains, he would begin to take over. And for seven years straight, uh, he won the Tour de France If you are familiar with Lance Armstrong, he, he began some charity things and, and he faced cancer and what amazing uh, overcoming some cancer treatment that he had. And, and he followed that up with trying to give back to the community. But in 2012, a, uh, an investigation took place, which made everyone aware that while he was cycling, he was involved in a doping scandal. Meaning he was using illegal, uh, according to the agency, illegal drugs, performance enhancing drugs that would allow him to compete at a higher level than others because he had drugs in his system. And not only did he participate with, uh, with these drugs, but he immediately denied that he did that until 2013 in a famous interview with Oprah Winfrey in which he finally admitted that he 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 did that the fallout was was not light the cycling agency took away and stripped all of his victories from him and so from 1995 to two, 1999 to 2005 there are no winner there was no winner to the tour de france because that was the price that he paid not only that it was public humiliation the loss of his Family, legal battles, the loss of sponsorships, and the tarnished and ruined reputation as quite possibly one of the greatest cyclists of all time. There were severe consequences to his great victories because he did not do them the right way. As you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open up to 2 Samuel, chapter 24. It is the final chapter of 2 Samuel. Uh, there are many chapters in David's life, and uh, we will look at one of the final chapters of David's life. And uh, it is not as popular as the one we looked at last week, which was David and Bathsheba. However, it is one that is uh, quite important, and one I think there, there are things we can learn from. And so we're gonna delve into that this week. 2 Samuel chapter 24, and it is David's census. David cannot make sense of his census this morning. And so we open the first nine verses really begin as a um, as a with the category of sin. It introduces the problem that David that David has. And then we get in the middle of the chapter, we get the follow-up and then the finality of the chapter. This morning, we're going to look at the sin, the sorrow, and the Savior. I don't normally have three points with, uh, with especially alliterated points, but this morning, I do. So, here you go. The sin, the sorrow, and the Savior. First off, we look at David's sin. Like Lance Armstrong, he's going to do something... Inappropriate, And there will be a problem and consequences for that. Let's begin in verse one. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, the Lord, incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and Judah. Go, number Israel and Judah was the temptation for for David now. Some of us wonder, why, was, why is it wrong to number Israel and Judah? And, and the easy answer is, well, we don't know. But we do know it was wrong because David is going to confess for doing it later. But, but one of a couple of reasons it could be, it could be that David took this census and didn't even give to God the census tax that, that he was allotted. That's what some commentators have purported. Others, and, and probably where I would land, would be that David thought that this was a way in which for himself to recognize how many people did he have. What damage could he do? The motivation behind this was inappropriate, that for the wrong way, David was trying to see how great his kingdom was. Now, what else is, is interesting is that we see Chronicles say it uh, even a different way. And I've got the wrong verse there, uh, Craig, my fault. Uh, but Chronicles says that Satan incited David to take this symptom, this census. Uh, so this is interesting that in the Chronicles passage, we have Satan inciting David. But here in the Samuel passage, which is a parallel passage, same thing. We have the Lord inciting David. So what do we do with that? This is a problem that some have come up with and said, look, how do we reconcile that in Chronicles, Satan is inciting David and in Samuel, the Lord is inciting David? What do we do with that? And the question comes up, uh, who incited David? Was it the Lord or was it Satan? And how do we answer that? If you are are working through this passage and you see that, what do you do? Do you just keep reading or do you stop and say, wait, this said Satan here in, in the Chronicles parallel passage. But, it, but over here it says the Lord did it. What do you do with that? And, and hopefully you look and you go, well, I, I got to figure this out. Now, we know for certain that the chronicler was looking and had complete knowledge of the Samuel, which was written. Hundreds of years earlier. It's not like it was a mistake. The chronicler chose to write that Satan incited the Lord, Satan incited David, while Samuel or whoever wrote for Samuel uh, didn't. Thank you, Nate. First Chronicles 12, 1. No, 1, 21. 21. First Chronicles 21. What do we do with this? And, and here's what we get to. Is this. Did the Lord incite David or did Satan? And the answer is, is yes. 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 They both did in some way. And let me give you some illustrations of how, that, of how that works out. In the scripture, oftentimes we see the Lord employing demonic powers to accomplish his will. And that is not to say that the Lord is creating evil. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that oftentimes the Lord has created means by which he uses for his greater purposes. And this is not a concept foreign to you if you've read the Bible very much or you've been around church because you remember the story of Job. And in Job chapter 1 verse 8, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He, he presents Job to Satan for testing. Okay, well, I, 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 I'm used to that one. That one doesn't sound crazy to me. But how about Micaiah and the prophet Micaiah? We studied him here before. I'm going to remind you in 1 Kings chapter 22. A spirit came forward in the council of the Lord. Very similar to the council that was in Job. Where where the uh, the Elohim were before God. The spirits were before God. They came before the Lord. And, and the Lord and he he's asking who will go and take care of this for me. And, and the, the Lord, the spirit comes to the Lord and says, I will entice him. And the Lord says, by what means? And the, the demonic spirit, this other spirit, this evil spirit says, I will go out and I will be a live spirit in the mouth of King Ahab's prophets. So the Lord replies, you are to entice him. You shall succeed. Go and do so. If you read the book of Revelation, you also see that in chapter 9, 12, and 16, the Lord employs demonic spirits or demons to go about and accomplish his purpose of judging the wicked. God created all things. He even created the spirits that do not, that, that promote evil. Why does this matter? Why why do I even spend time on Sunday morning sharing this with you? And it's uh, it does matter because what we see is that God's hand is sovereign over all things. God created all things. He created heaven. He created hell. He created angels. He created demons. He created people who do good things and people who do bad things. God is sovereign and he's ruling over all of those things. And it matters because God uses all of what he created to accomplish his greater purpose. And if we miss that, we miss some of the glory of God. God has a greater purpose that he's working and he's accomplishing to do things that He, he are in his will. Let me give you uh, an example. Um, in Genesis chapter 50, y'all are familiar with this story. And it is this, that that joseph has been sold into slavery that he's now he he's been up and down he's been in jail he's interpreting dreams and now he's the leader of the whole nation of egypt and his brothers come before him and they feel bad because they're the ones that sold him into slavery and put him into jail and caused all of this grief for many years to happen to joseph and they're afraid that the leader of, of egypt joseph is going to hurt them and so they make up this lie that their, grand, that their father told them about protecting them. And, and Joseph replies to them in his mercy. In his mercy, Joseph replies to his brothers who sold him out, literally. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, who was it? God meant it for good. Now remember, Joseph has been in prison. He's been lied about. He was treated like a slave. He was mistreated and abused. And Joseph, in his mercy, goes to his brothers and says, God meant this for good. This is a part of God's greater plan and purpose. The Lord has this. As a part of his purpose to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. And they are today. Sometimes the Lord is able to accomplish his purposes in ways that we just can't comprehend. And so church, here's your first bit of application this morning. Sometimes things happen in our lives that we don't like. Sometimes people betray us or hurt us with their words or their deeds. Sometimes circumstances or health comes along that we don't care for. But here's what we must remember. God is a sovereign God on his throne. And oftentimes he ordains things that you and I do not care for or do not like. But he does them in order to accomplish his will. Will. Which is much better than what our will is. And there are times that we are tempted to even be angry with God. Because he's allowed things to come to pass that we really don't like. Here's the great hope for us. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He has things and plans that we cannot comprehend. Christian, this is the place where we must come to say, I trust you, God. I don't comprehend it. I don't know why, but I trust you, Lord. And if you haven't come to that place in your life where there are things around you you don't like, maybe you despise or dread them. We must come to the place in our lives and our hearts where we say, Lord, I don't like it, but I trust you because you are on your throne. And you are working things bigger than just my circumstance here. Now, we get a hint in this story of what God's purpose may be. It's not every bit of information, but we do get something. Go back to verse 1 of 2 Samuel 24, and you're going to see that the Lord has a purpose in this whole thing playing out. Look, here it is. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? Against Israel. Against Israel. So God has some reason he is angry with the people of Israel. More than likely, there's some disobedience. They've broken a vow, which we read about earlier, a couple chapters, if you're if you're reading through a broken vow that Saul had kept. Maybe this is all related, but there is a reason that God's anger is kindled against the people of Israel. And so now the purpose that comes along is that David will be drawn into sin and tempted by this spirit He will be tempted by the spirit to do something wrong and then judgment will come. Consequences are going to come and that will work out against God's anger against his people. Walk with me through this. There are difficult themes that we're dealing with today, but this is the first thing. God had anger against Israel for something and he used David's willful and sinful heart to bring about judgment upon the people. Let me say that again. God's anger was against the nation of Israel, and he used David's willful and sinful actions to bring about judgment upon the people of Israel. Watch how it plays out. This is God's sovereignty. And at the end, I'm going to give you a hint. At the end, we're going to seek Jesus today. I'm excited about that part. All right. Are y'all still with me? There's a problem. God is angry. And there's sin to be had, and there's judgment coming. So, verse 2. So, the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, who was with him. Hey, Joab, go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from New York to L.A., all across the nation, and number the people. That I might know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king... May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my Lord, the king, still see it. But why does the Lord, or my Lord, why do you, King David, why do you take delight in this thing? Why do you want to know how many people that there are? What's motivating you, David? What's in your heart that you want to know this? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. David is pushing through. Now, I want you to notice something. God, even in his grace, as Satan comes to tempt David, more than likely in his arrogance of wanting to know how many people there are. The Lord even provides Joab, a faithful commander to David, in many ways. To him to say, are you sure you want to do this? He even brings the grace to say, David, are you sure that you want to do this? But David's heart is made up. His course is set. He is is committed to this, this sinful deed that he's going to take place. So Joab, the commander... And the commanders of the army went out from this presence from the king to number of the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan. They began from Aroer. And from that city is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh, that is in the land of the Hittites. They came to Dan. And from Dan they went to Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Nine months, twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah, there were 500,000. So Joab takes his people from New York to L.A. all across the land of Egypt, of Israel. And numbers the people. I had a church member ask me this week. Why were the numbers different? Well, you compare the Chronicles 21 passage. First Chronicles 21 passage. And you'll see that the numbers are different. You can see there's 1.1 million. Who drew the sword in 1 Chronicles 21. 5-6. through six, And 470,000. Who drew the sword? what do we do with those numbers and, and here 's the best uh, the best answer I have again it 's not like he didn 't see the other numbers, so there 's a reason why he 's choosing different numbers. but you look in Samuel, there are valiant men valiant men who drew the sword and, and what most commentators say is the, the reason for those differing numbers are It could have been they numbered men with the sword, as in some were under the fighting age. It could have been that some were experienced or seasoned people in battle. Nonetheless, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. David continued in his sin and did what he wanted to do rather than what he was guarded against or advised not to do. And we move to this next section, the sorrow. Lance Armstrong lost all of his titles. Lance Armstrong lost all of his clout. Lance Armstrong lost his wife. He lost his sponsors. Lance Armstrong lost it all. Because he did something the wrong way. Well, we get to verse 11 of 2 Samuel 24. And we have the great sorrow. We've had the sin. Now we have the sorrow when David. uh, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Have you ever been there? Has your heart ever struck you? Maybe it was at your time of salvation for you, and your heart was struck. I I remember, you remember the story of the prodigal son? I always think about this story. The the prodigal son has taken his father's money, he's taken his father's um, love, and he's run off to do his own thing, and he ends up squandering all of this money. He gets into the, the pigsty, and he's feeding pigs which would be detestable for a jewish man. And the bible says and he came to himself. He woke up. His mind was awakened. And this is similar to to David. He, the bible says his heart struck him. Have you been there? Have you been struck by your guilt before God? You know, our heart doesn't strike us when we think God is just accepting of everything we do. But when we recognize and realize God is holy and perfect and true. And that we have come and done something against his desires and his wishes. Our heart strikes us. And this is the gift of the spirit of God convicting us. In our Sunday school class, we looked at God granting repentance to people. That it is very clearly, according to the the Bible... God granting repentance and if your heart has struck you 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 can relate to David oh God how could I David's heart struck him now you know what's interesting we've studied through David's life in fact last week we looked at sin is vile but grace is great that was last week remember some of you Our sin is vile. It is a a, a terrible thing, dirty thing. But God's grace comes and it washes us in regeneration. Did you notice the verbiage that that was read this morning that was washed in regeneration? David's heart struck him. Last week, though, what had to happen for David to recognize he had a problem? Do you remember? Somebody came to David. What was his name? Anybody remember? Nathan the prophet. Nathan came and he told them the story about the sheep and the the rich man and the poor man. And they took the poor man's sheep to feed the rich man's guest. and, And Nathan said, what? You are that man. You are that man. And then David's heart went into confession. But this time, I want you to notice something. It's interesting. This time, there's no prophet. How does verse 10 start? David's heart struck him. It was merely the Spirit of God coming to David, convicting him, and then comes the prophet. The order is is inverted, interestingly enough. So David says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Christian, are you here today? Maybe you can relate to David. Maybe you're in a place right now where your arrogance is driving and ruining relationships in your lives. Maybe you are unwilling to humble yourself and do what God has called you to do. Maybe you are participating in sinful activities that you know are wrong, but you're unwilling to stop. May your heart strike you as David's heart struck him. And here's the response we go to God with, which is which is lovely. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When your heart strikes you, Christian, come to 2 Samuel twenty-four ten. Read this confession before God. Now, here's the hard part. Y'all still with me? Here's the hard part. David confesses before God. He cries out, take my iniquity. But there's still a consequence to pay. The Lord may take away the iniquity and the writing the guilt that is upon David's soul, but there are still consequences to pay. And sometimes we get upset with God when there are consequences. Sometimes we get upset with ourselves when there are consequences. But nonetheless, they're there. And and David arose the next morning and and the prophet Gad comes to him. And and I can imagine maybe David is is glad to see the prophet Gad come in and, and pronounce forgiveness on God's behalf. And as the prophet Gad comes in, he says to him, the, the Lord said at least to, to the prophet Gad, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things can I offer you. And, and what is David ready? He, Oh, three things. Okay, okay. What are they? Choose the best, that which I might do to you. Verse 13. So Gad came to David and and told him. You get to choose, David. Do you want three years of famine? Three years of famine? Do you want three months of your enemies pursuing you and you running from your enemies? Which David certainly knew what that looked like. Fleeing from Saul. Or finally... Do you want three days of pestilence in your land? Three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of pestilence? Now consider, said Gad, and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. What would you choose? David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hands of man. What does David decide? Well, David decides specifically that he doesn't want to be at the mercy of another man. But rather, David wants to be at the mercy of his God. And so he chooses. Lord, I'm at your mercy. I want to take judgment from you. Now. Look at verse 14. Let me read David's response one more time. I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Why? you all see it. For his mercy. Is. Great. David's choice here is to rely on God's mercy. Christian, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what it means to rely on God's mercy? Here's the temptation. There are consequences to pay. And let's look back at Lance Armstrong for a moment. Lance Armstrong was... was. Um, People were pointing at him and saying, you did illegal drugs to win these races. And what was Lance Armstrong's response? you talking about me doing drugs to win these races? I, that wasn't me. And he avoided anybody asking these questions. Does that ring a bell with any of you guys? Any of y'all ever avoid when, some, when the truth is told and it's like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, look around and look for the alibi. Christian, when, when God presents us with the truth, it is our duty to run to him for his mercy. Let me test your faith for a moment. If you've zoned out, come on right back in, right here. Let me test your faith for a moment. When you sin, are you willing to run to God knowing that he may have consequences for your sin? Let me say that again. When you sin, is your your gut response to run and hide like Adam and Eve in the garden? Or is it to run to God and say, Lord, I did this wrong. I'm casting myself upon your mercy? And I ask you that because what is your view of God? Do you truly believe that He is rich in mercy, even though He gives you consequences? Do you trust God? To run to him when you've done wrong. Or do you run to the fig tree? And this is where maybe Christian you may need to do business. God is our refuge and strength. The very present help in times of trouble says the psalm. Do you run to God. When you know. There's a price to pay. Do you trust in His mercy? Do you really trust in His mercy? You may be here this morning and you may not be a Christian. We're glad that you're here. Maybe you've run your entire life from God because you've wanted to avoid the consequences. God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy. We're going to get there in just a moment. Let me pick up in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died from the people, of, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men 70,000 men died and the tough question that we get to is is that mercy God killing 70,000 people is that is that mercy what do you do with that What if someone comes to you and says, look, 70,000 people died, but yet David thinks God's a merciful God. How do you respond? What do you tell your son, your daughter, your friend, co-worker? I don't look too merciful to me. Verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, stay your hand, stop. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. David owns his sin, which started this, but did it. It didn't really start all this. Israel's sin did. But David nonetheless owns it and says, look, I'm I'm the one who's sinful. Cast your judgment upon me. David may not be aware of Israel's sin, but he's owning it. Let's continue. And Gad came that day to David and said, "Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite." So David went up to uh, at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded, and he came to Aruna and looked down and saw the king and his servant coming around toward him, and Aruna went out and paid homage. To the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna, he said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague, the pestilence may be averted from these people. So Aruna says to David, let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are my oxen for the burnt offering. And the threshing sledges, and the yoke of oxen for the wood. All of this, O king, Aruna gives it to the king. That's great. Right? Aruna says, I'll, I'll be part of the solution. Here. Take everything you want. This is for the Lord. It's my it's yours. Give it to the Lord. But the king says to Aruna, No. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Let me close out this this story. Okay, this place, Arunas plot of land was the place that 900 years earlier, A guy named Isaac was walked up a mountain to be sacrificed before the Lord by his father, Abraham. And the Lord provided an offering so that Isaac would not be killed. Same place. This place was also purchased and the place where the temple would be built. Where Millions upon millions of sacrifices would be made in the name of forgiving sin. Throughout the Mosaic Covenant. This place was also the place where you could look and cast your eye on a hill called Golgotha. The place of the skull. Where a newer and better sacrifice would take place. That would kill the pestilence. That would not kill merely 70,000. But would affect every human being on this planet. But God in his mercy sent his son. So that not everybody would get what they deserved. Many. Whoever is in Christ would receive mercy. Mercy from the hand of God through his son, Jesus Christ. So, Christian, if you're here this morning and you say, Well, 70,000 people, that doesn't sound very merciful to me. Did you forget the number of people in Israel? Those those big numbers? 1.1 million drew the sword. Here's mercy, Christian. You don't get what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Eternal condemnation, separation, and judgment from the hand of God in a place called hell. Suffering. Eternal You can read the parable that Jesus gave in Luke with the rich man and Lazarus, suffering, yearning for relief. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't hear amen. I heard one little amen. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. In this place. God's mercy conquered sin. Christian, in your heart, God's mercy has conquered sin. Friend, if you are here and you don't know Christ, today is the day that God's mercy can conquer sin in your life. And you come before God and you say, I will not offer anything before god that doesn't cost me anything that is how we respond god you deserve your great mercy has pardoned me i will give to you my life as a living sacrifice and it will cost me everything because i am no longer the ruler of my soul and my day-to-day actions lord i am humbling myself before you i repent of my sin And I come to say, you are my God, my sovereign God, and I trust you. Do you trust him? Do you trust his mercy? Do you believe it, Christian? Do you believe his mercy abounds? Are you willing to give him yourself and your future and who you are and say, Lord, whatever the cost, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. Your mercy is great and your steadfast undying unending love endures forever do you trust let's pray together father we trust you what a great message you have given to us of the mercy that it conquers sin lord if there are any souls in this room that need to be conquered by your mercy lord move upon them Awaken them, show them great mercy today. God, may they rise and say, Jesus saves me. I'm a sinner that repents. Jesus save me. God, help us walk out of this place trusting you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.